Good morning. If you don't know who I am, my name is Pastor John, and I'm glad that you've joined us here in worship today. To start today, I want you to ask you a question. You don't have to answer out loud, but just kind of think to yourself. If I were to ask you, where is your hometown, or where do you consider to be your hometown? The place that you think most fondly of, or the place that you feel like, that's the place where I belong. There may be different answers for different people. For me, that answer is, is here, this area, the Harrisburg area. I wasn't born here, but my family moved here when I was very young. And uh, as I was here growing up, I wanted to leave. I wanted to go somewhere else. So I went away for college and seminary, but I just couldn't resist coming back whenever the opportunity was available. In fact, what stands out to me the most about that is when I went to seminary, I went to school down south in North Carolina, on my way home, when I was about halfway home, I was on a particular road that I'd come over a hill and then I would see the Blue Ridge Mountains. And I knew that I just had to follow the Blue Ridge Mountains and they'd take me the rest of the way home. And there's, I can't almost describe the feeling of joy in my heart when I'd come over that hill and I'd see the mountains and I'd know I'm almost home, I'm almost there. And there's nothing wrong with feeling nostalgic or having that type of love for a particular place, a, a city, a town, even feeling that way about the country that you belong to. But at the same time, we need to keep that love in perspective and let those feelings remind us of a greater home that is to come. Because as wonderful as whatever place you consider your hometown to be is, our passage today, Hebrews 12, verses 18 through 29, it's going to talk to us about a better home, a better kingdom that we belong to. Now, there were many different things I could have decided to title this particular message, looking at this passage, thinking about this better kingdom. I was thinking about this idea of hometown, and I thought maybe I'll, I'll call it Jesus is better than your home, or Jesus is better than Harrisburg, or Jesus is better than the United States, but I thought oh, that will just push the message away, and so I just want to focus on the fact that in Christ we have access to a better kingdom, a better home. If you haven't been here, we're going through the book of Hebrews, which is a New Testament letter. The author is writing to people who are followers of Christ, but at one time they were practicers of Judaism. They have a Jewish background, but they're wavering a bit. They're thinking maybe we should go back to just practicing Judaism and put this Christian stuff to the side. And he's trying to convince them that Jesus is better. The text that we're looking at today looks at several passages in the Old Testament to teach us an important truth, and then the author of this passage gives us an application. If you might remember, if you've been here, this letter reads a lot like a sermon. So the author gives a truth, and then he applies it. And in many ways, this passage is kind of the climax of the book. This is the last time he has a full discussion in the text about why Jesus is better than Old Testament Judaism. There's a lot of ground to cover here. I actually thought about maybe I should just split this into two, but I couldn't resist how this is structured like a sermon. The author gives a point, and then he gives application. So, yes, I'm the one talking, but hopefully I'm just reflecting what the author of this text has already said. Since it's a bit of a longer passage, we're not going to stand and read it like we normally do, so I'm going to pray, and then we'll dive into this passage. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time we have to worship and praise you through song, and now, God, to worship you through hearing and being changed and challenged by your word. 
Thank you, God, that there is a better home, a better kingdom that we are a part of and that is still to come. I pray, God, that as we look at this text, that you would fill us with gratitude that we do not approach you at a terrifying mountain, but instead at a place of joy that we can meet you. And God, may that good, wonderful news lead to change in our lives so that we do not refuse and reject you, but we still embrace the unshakable kingdom you offer through your Son. And we respond in worship and praise to you. God, may you be honored by this time together and may this conversation lead us to focus intensely on your Son and what he has done for us so that each of us can truly say, may he, Jesus, increase, may we decrease. Lord, help us to see you clearly in this time this morning. It's in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, that I pray. Amen. Amen. If you were here last week, we were looking at kind of the middle of Hebrews chapter 12. So I encourage you, if you're not already there, to turn to your Bibles in Hebrews 12. You can use that blue one in the seat back in front of you if you don't have one. I'll also put up on the screen what we're going to be talking about there. Last week, we were in verses 12 through 17, and the author gave us a challenge. He encouraged us, your life is to be about pursuing peace and pursuing holiness. And here he's going to give us another reason why our lives should be about those two things. So here's the great truth he wants us to understand in this passage. The truth, if you use the outline, this is your first blank, is that we have come to a better mountain. We as followers of Christ, how we approach God, we have come to a better mountain. A better mountain. In this this section of verses, verses 18 through 24, he's going to talk about two different mountains, two different ways we could relate to God, and he's going to say one of them, the one through Jesus Christ, is better. And to do that, he first paints a picture for us, a very vivid picture of what he calls, he doesn't use this word, but it jumps off the page, the terrifying mountain. There's a terrifying mountain, and this is a reference to Mount Sinai in the Old Testament where God's people got the law. So let's read about this terrifying mountain, Hebrews 12. I'm going to read verses 18 through 21 here. He says, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the voice of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. Verse 20 says, They could not endure the order that was given, If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Here we have a picture of what happened when God spoke to people, gave them his law, his commandments. That place was Mount Sinai, and when that happened, the mountain was covered with fire and smoke. It looked like a constant storm and tempest. And all of God's people, the Israelites who were there at that moment, they heard a sound like the blast of a trumpet. They heard God speaking from the mountain. And they were terrified of that. They were so scared, they asked Moses, Moses, you talk to God. You represent us before God. Here's where this happens in Exodus. It's Exodus 20, Exodus 20, 18 and 19. It says, Now when all the people saw the thunder 
and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountains smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. They stood far off. They said to Moses, you speak to us, we will listen. Do not let God speak to us lest we die. They were scared of God's power revealed there at that mountain. Our next verse, verse 20, has a quote from the chapter before, Exodus 19, where God spoke about how this mountain where his presence was, was holy. It was set apart, and the sinful people could not approach the mountain. God said this for this good, their good. They were sinful. They had rebelled against God. If they came close to God's holiness, they would be destroyed. It's kind of like they, and the people could tell this, this holiness of God and the danger that was there. If you've ever been to or participated in a large bonfire, like someone's made a really big fire, the heat that comes from that can spread much further than you'd expect. I remember once in college, I was with uh, some friends at an event and the people there made a bonfire of several pallets. pallets they stacked them pretty high and they, they put them on fire. And when the whole thing heated up, you couldn't get within 10 feet of the fire. It was just so hot there. You tell, that is hot. That is dangerous. I cannot get close to that. Well, that's how God's people were feeling when they saw all this fire and storm on this mountain. They said, whoa, we cannot get close to that. And so they staggered back in fear. They were unable to handle or even endure the fact God had to tell them, do not touch this mountain. And hearing God's voice made them afraid they were terrified that his judgment was coming on them. Moses was afraid too. The quote in our passage here in verse 21 is a, kind of a paraphrase from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 9, verse 19. What's happening here is our author is trying to create an image in his audience's mind. Remember, they were at one time practicers of Judaism. They were familiar with this story, and he's driving their mind back to that moment, a key moment of the Jewish faith when God gave his law to his people. It's a powerful moment. It's how we know who God is and what he is like. But at the same time, for believers, for followers of Christ, we also know that in that moment, there's no relationship there for us. That moment, that great demonstration of power of God, there's, there's not a hope in that. There's not a comfort to be found from just continuing in that understanding of God. One Christian writer who lived hundreds of years ago named uh, John Bunyan, he wrote a very famous story known as the Pilgrim's Progress. It's an allegory. It tells us a story through images and pictures of a Christian journeying to heaven, to the celestial city. And at one point in the story, this man Christian, he's turned aside out of the road by someone named Worldly Wise Man, who tells him he instead needs to go to this direction of Mount Sinai. And as he gets close there, as he's heading toward a city where they emphasize legality, following the rules, and he comes by Mount Sinai, this is how Bunyan describes it. He says, the hill seemed so high that the side of it was next to the wayside. It did hang so much over the road. Christian was afraid to venture farther, lest the hill should fall on his head. Also, his burden of sin on his back now seemed heavier to him than he, when he was on his way. There also came flashes of fire out of the hill that made Christian afraid that he should be burned by this mountain. It was a terrifying sight. Uh, they recently made a 
a couple years ago, an animated version of this. We actually had a movie night here at the church, and, and we watched it. In that version, they do the scene a little different, but it's still terrifying. The mountain's called Legality Hill. It's a mountain of commandments that chases Christian at one point, trying to get him. Now you may say, Pastor, what, what's the point of all these images making something sound so scary, so threatening? Well, the author's about to make a contrast. He's saying that that place, there was fear and terror there, in that law and judgment, but there's something different to be found in Jesus Christ. And that, that's where we're getting to. But let's stay a moment right here. This idea of this terrifying mountain, supernatural power, that may seem really far from us. We may think that doesn't really have anything to do with my life. But think about what that moment represented. It was God giving law, instruction to his people. The implication the author's driving for us is if we try to live by obeying rules, by doing what's right, that that is what makes us right before God, that we use our actions to things we do to justify decisions that we make. If we try to make ourselves right and good before God and before others, he says that is a terrifying way to live. We sometimes think that if my faith was about do it yourself, it's the things I do that make me right before God. If it's the things I do that determine what happens to me in the future, that that's freeing, being able to make my own decisions, being able to choose to determine what my future looks like. We think that's freeing, but our author is saying if you live by rules, it's actually terrifying because that type of life leaves you all alone before the Lord of the universe. It's just you standing before God, trying to say, God, these were some things I did right. But God is like that fire that we can't get close to. We realize how far we are from him. But the encouragement in our passage, as it said in verse 18, is you have not come to this. This is not where we are. We're going to be somewhere else, somewhere we're going to talk about in a moment. And so that should give us confidence and encouragement as we try to get through this life, this race on earth. The encouragement is that our hope is not a physical mountain. It's not a place that we can touch. It's, it's not here at all. Our God cannot be touched. He's not something one who can be easily explained. He's not someone we can fully understand who he is and explain him away. No, he is greater than our preconceived notions. He's not a God we made up, but the one who is true. And he has brought us somewhere else. Instead of a terrifying mountain, he has brought us to a joyful mountain, to a joyful mountain. Not a place of terror, but of joy, a joyful mountain. Let me read verses 22 through 24. So we just said, you have not come somewhere, but verse 22 says, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. And you've come to the innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Our author is saying that God's new covenant, his new way of relating to his people, is superior to and exceeds that old covenant. 
Paul would write somewhere. He talks about that old covenant. He says, that is a ministry of condemnation. It told us where we fall short. And he said, if there was glory in that, the ministry of condemnation, then now the way we're righteous through Jesus Christ, it must far exceed it in glory. For believers, Christ has fulfilled the Old Testament law. So we do not approach God by rules. We approach him by his grace. We do not come to a mountain of terror. We come to a mountain of mercy. We're not kept distant from God. We're invited to draw near. And now we have a better home and a better kingdom. That's why it's a mountain of joy, because it's joyful, good news. There's joy in a present relationship with God. As verse 22 says, we have come, you have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Now, that phrase, Mount Zion, in the Old Testament, it was often used to talk about the actual city of Jerusalem, the actual place that's there in Israel. But sometimes, like here, it's used to talk about something else. And it's talking about the true heavenly city, the new Jerusalem, where God's people dwell with him. It's a place we're not there yet, but the author says, spiritually, you have access to its blessings through Jesus, because right now you can have a relationship of joy and peace with God. And that is our true home. We've actually seen this several times in the book of Hebrews. Back in chapter 11, we read this. It's talking about God's people. It says, but as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. And so therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. He has prepared for them a city talking about the hope God's people had of this city, of this Mount Zion, of this new Jerusalem to come. Our author also tells us that once we are there, we are blessed to participate in heavenly worship. So we've come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, but also to innumerable, countless angels in festal gathering. We've come to join angels, and we'll talk about a second, also an assembly of believers who have come before. This place we are going has these powerful supernatural beings, angels. It says innumerable thousands, myriads of them. But these powerful beings are not there so we can stand in all of them. No, they are all worshiping the one who is far greater than even them. The image this should paint to our mind sometimes runs against some popular descriptions of heaven. Sometimes heaven is presented in a rather boring way. You float on a cloud, you have a little harp, and, and that's it there. No, the image painted here, it says a festal gathering. This is a party, friends. This is a celebration of joy before God. Not like a wild party, things destroyed. No, but a pleasant one that everyone enjoys. We will be welcomed. We will join an eternal celebration. And again, look at the language of this verse. I kept it up on the screen. It's not that this is just something that is to come. It's something that's in the future. Look at the tense here. He says, you have come to this. There's a sense that you are already there because it is so certain. In Christ, you are already there in spirit. You can already rejoice with the confidence that that is happening, even though you're not yet there in reality. But you will be soon. Pastor F.B. Meyer put it this way, to that city we have come. It has come down into our hearts day by day. We walk in its streets. We live in its light. We breathe its atmosphere. You may say, how does that happen? Because even right now, 
we enjoy its rights. We have fellowship with God. We can talk to God. We can praise Him. We can have a relationship with Him. So we've, in a sense, come to this great party, and it's still to come, but also verse 23 tells us that in Jesus Christ, we have also joined the assembly, the congregation, the gathering, the church of the firstborn, meaning of God's people. This is a picture that in that city, in that future, we will be joined by every single person who has ever believed and trusted in Jesus Christ. Throughout all history, we will be together at last. While we may be isolated and divided now, loved ones may die and leave us one day we will worship together. And that happens because we are, we've received a blessing where it says the assembly of the firstborn. Remember, this is talking about the ancient world. If you were the firstborn son, you got certain benefits. You inherited more of your parents' estate. But he's saying, if you know Jesus Christ, you get those greater benefits, those larger shares through Jesus Christ. He is God's firstborn, most important son, representative. And if you know him, you get everything he gets. You get his inheritance, his status. What Jesus receives from God, he gives to us, his people. To put it another way, the author says, you are enrolled in heaven. We are registered in the heavenly book of life, God's record of who belongs to him. This is an image that's seen the other way in the very last book of the Bible. Revelation says anyone's name not found written in the book of life is judged, is thrown into the lake of fire. But look there, there is a book of life. And this passage tells us that if you know Jesus Christ, your name is written in it. It also tells us that we know God, the judge, the true judge of all, who will one day judge everyone who has ever lived and will enforce perfect justice, who will right every wrong. Again, we may say, it doesn't feel like that right now. I see a lot of wrong in the world, a lot of wrong in my life. Things don't feel like they're right, but the author is again saying it's so certain. It's like we're already there. We may not feel like we're there, like it's going to happen. God's going to make everything wrong right, but it will. It's certain we can have confidence in it. He also says we will be with the spirits of the righteous made perfect. The spirits of the righteous or the just made perfect before God. When our life ends, when we die, when we go to heaven, then we are made perfect there. Our sin is removed. The things that wore us down here are gone. We saw this earlier in Hebrews. Hebrews 10 says, By a single offering, he, Jesus Christ, has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified, growing in holiness. Christ has done the work, and when we are there, the work is finished. Think about someone you know and love who has passed. If they knew Jesus Christ, then when they arrive there, the sickness and the death that claim them is gone forever. The sin that made their life difficult and hard is removed. God has made them perfect in his presence. And if we know God, that's what will happen to us too. Now one day those who have gone, they'll be re reunited with their bodies and renewed physical bodies. Scripture talks about this elsewhere. But until then, that's why he says their spirits are perfect 
before God. But in all of this, this picture would be incomplete if we didn't mention our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He's the best part of heaven. And verse 24 says, and we've come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. Now, if you've been here, we talked about that word before, mediator. It's someone who stands in the middle, who represents two different parties. He's the one who represents us before God. He stands between us as sinful human beings and that holy God that we could not touch. He did that by dying for sin, paying the penalty, taking away the thing that stood between us so that we could be restored to God and have a relationship with him. We saw this earlier in the book of Hebrews. Chapter 9 said, How much more will the blood of Christ through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God? He offered himself, and what does that do? It purifies our conscience from dead works so we can serve the living God. It restores the relationship. And what does that mean? Verse 15 tells us, therefore he is now that mediator, the one who stands in the middle, the mediator of a new covenant, a new relationship with God, so that those who are called, we receive that promised eternal inheritance, that, that firstborn right. We get that because a death has occurred and his death redeems, saves us from our transgressions and sins we committed under that first covenant there because of what christ has done we are brought to god he is our only hope and savior who shed his blood to save us and the very last phrase of this passage talks about that blood what did christ's blood death do well it's the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of abel now you may read that and think what in the world is he talking about there pastor john well, Abel is a character from the Old Testament, someone who lived. He was the first person who was murdered and killed. Abel uh, had an older brother, Cain, and his older brother killed him. And then after Cain killed Abel, God spoke to Cain. In Genesis 4.10, this is what God says. The Lord says to Cain, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. God knows something wrong has happened. He knows that there's some injustice here. And so for Abel's blood, his death, God demanded vengeance, justice for sin. The message of Abel's blood is when we do wrong, there needs to be a death. There needs to be something to happen to pay for sin. That's the message of his blood. But for believers, Christ's blood speaks a better message. That requirement that something needs to die to make us right with God, that has been met in Jesus Christ because he died to pay for sin on our behalf. He paid our debt to God's justice. And so his shed blood, his death, is now a message of forgiveness, grace, and mercy, and not judgment. Again, Pastor F.B. Meyer put it this way, listen to the cry of the blood of Jesus. It tells us there is no condemnation, no wrath, no judgment, because that thunderstorm on that terrifying mountain, it broke. It exhausted itself on Calvary, which is where Jesus died. And it's a great phrase. God's wrath, his judgment, his terror that we see, it poured, was poured out on Christ. So that if we know Jesus, we don't see God as a source of fear and terror, but as someone that we can know and have a relationship with. 
So what does that mean for us? Well, what in the world is the application here? Well, because of what Christ has done, friends, we can draw near to God. We can approach Him. We've seen this in Hebrews as well. Hebrews 10 says, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Why can we draw near? Because our hearts have been sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Christ has died. He has cleansed us from sin. Our bodies have been washed with pure water. Friends, the lesson of these two mountains is that there's, you either draw near to one or the other. You can try to approach that holy mountain of terror or you can draw near to this party, this celebration in heaven, not because of anything you've done, but because of what Christ has done for us. So let me ask you, have you drawn near to him? Have you come to the blood of Jesus? The way that happens is if you turn from your sin and you trust, believe in what Christ has done, that he has paid that debt for you. And if you haven't done that, I pray that you'll have a conversation with someone about how you can know him and how you can have a relationship with him. But you may say, but pastor, I am a believer in Jesus Christ, or, or I claim to be, well, what should I do? I've already come to Jesus, so what, what's, what am I supposed to do? Well, the good news is our author here in the text, he gives us the application. He gives us three responses that we can have to this truth, that we've come to this better mountain. So let's start. The first part of this three-part response is that do not refuse God. If this is true, that there's a better mountain, then do not refuse God. Do not ignore his word or turn away from him. This is an appeal for us to seek God, to turn away from idols, pursue holiness, and a warning of judgment if we refuse God. Let me read verses 25 through 27. Verse 25 says, See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they, again talking about those Old Testament Israelites, if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the whole earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. And this phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that things that cannot be shaken may remain. The author uses a comparison here, particularly in verse 25, to prove that God judges those who reject him and reject his word. He's giving us the full picture of what happened to those Israelites who saw God's glory. Maybe you've seen a movie or read a book or a little TV show talking about the events of the book of Exodus. That's where God brought his people, the Israelites, out of slavery in Egypt. Many of those stories end shortly after the Red Sea. Moses comes, the Red Sea parts, they escape, the waters come down, across the Egyptians. It's a great high note to end a story on. Sometimes they go a little further and they go to where the people receive God's instructions, his Ten Commandments. But normally the story wraps up somewhere around then. What that is leaving out is the sad reality of what happened next. Because later, almost all of those people who escaped from Egypt and walked through the Red Sea, they rejected the God who saved them. They disobeyed his word that he gave through 
his servant Moses. And almost all of them died in the wilderness that happened over there after that. That death is what happens to those who reject God. But now, after the life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ, God doesn't speak in like that storm there. No, he speaks to us in his word, the Bible. He speaks to us through the good news of Jesus Christ. And so our author is using that image to speak to these Hebrew believers. He's saying, you may want to go back, but remember your ancestors. They tried to turn away from God, and that only led to suffering and death for them. And that's what will happen if you turn away from and reject God now. Turning away from God only leads to his just wrath, from which there is no escape. Back in chapter 2, we saw, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? And the answer is, we won't. We won't escape. To reject Jesus, the message of Christianity, to reject his church, that is to reject God. We either receive Christ or we refuse and reject him. There is no middle ground. And our next couple verses tell us God will judge the world and our allegiance will be revealed. He points out in verse 26 that back in Exodus when God spoke, Mount Sinai shook that terrifying mountain. At that time his voice shook the earth. But now he's promised yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. There's a greater shaking still to come. This is a quote from the Old Testament. One prophet, Haggai, looks ahead, or God lets him to see the future, gives him a message. Thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. Everything will be shaken. A great future judgment is coming that will lead to the eternal state. As verse 27 says, this phrase, yet once more, indicates The removal of all these things that are shaken, the things that have been made, will be removed in order that only the things that cannot be shaken will remain. Friends, the truth is that everything we see around us, the created things of this earth, will be shaken, torn down, removed, completely changed by our Lord. We've seen hints of this throughout history of this type of shaking. Great events have happened that change course of the world. There may be an empire or a nation that exists for a thousand years and then collapses almost overnight. And who are we to think that our time is any different? The nations, the empires that we see around us now, they may fall too. They will either fall at that great final judgment or they could be shaken before. At that final judgment, scholar L. Moeller says, a judgment is coming that will topple every kingdom, every throne, every nation will fall, except one. Except one, and that's God's unshakable kingdom. Because what we see is temporary. God's kingdom is eternal. One of the psalmists put it this way in Psalm 102, saying to God, of old you laid the foundation of the earth. The heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish but you, God, remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no end. And so what does that mean? Well, for God's people, the children of your servants shall dwell secure. Their offspring shall be established before you.
Yes, there may be great shaking change in the world, but this is an encouragement for us. Yes, there may be chaos, confusion around us, but Scripture's told us this world will not last. So we should reject the sin of it for God's greater glory. And if we are not refusing God, but if we're listening to Him, following Him, then what we're doing is the second application He gives us. Do not refuse God, but embrace His unshakable kingdom. Calls us to not turn away from God's word, but embrace that better kingdom that lasts forever. The author encourages us to be grateful, thankful for the eternal kingdom God gives that, again, cannot be shaken. The first part of verse 28 says, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. This is something God's also predicted. In the Old Testament, in the book of Daniel, he said, In those, the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. That kingdom will not be left to another people. No, it will break in pieces all those kingdoms. It will bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. God's kingdom shall not be shaken or destroyed. It will last forever. And so this kingdom should be our goal, our home. In the next chapter of Hebrews, the author will remind us, here we have no lasting city. We seek the city, that new Jerusalem, that Mount Zion, that is to come. Now that's easy to say. It's a lot harder to embrace in our lives because we make our lives very temporary focused. And in our self-centeredness, we can forget that this world of constant shaking and change is not our home. It's not going to last. As a, I wouldn't just say country, as a people, everyone in the world, perhaps the chaos of the last few years, it's God's way of teaching us, his overly complacent people, that this world is not our home and that only his kingdom cannot be shaken. I've quoted a couple times from this guy, F.B. Meyer. I really enjoy some things he writes about Hebrew, but uh, something I may not have fully conveyed, he's one of those old dead pastors that I like to quote. He died in 1929, but even then he wrote this that just sounds so true even for the things of today. To him, it seemed like in his day, around 1900, that everything is being shaken and tested, but there is a divine purpose in it all, that his eternal truth may stand out more clearly and unmistakably when all human traditions and accomplishments have fallen away unable to resist the energy of the shock saying everything else may fall away but god's kingdom will stand out more clearly unmistakably he's spoken of a time of great change but he still had confidence that god's will would be done and his church would endure do we have that type of confidence? Do we believe that God's kingdom will remain and stand firm? Or, or do we perhaps view our lives, we expect to have peace and ease in our lives here on earth? We shouldn't. We should expect uncertain times in this world. But if we believe that God's kingdom will remain firm, oh, then we do not have to be afraid. Well, we don't have to be afraid with, no matter what happens in the world. Because, friends, there's no politician and no government, there's no enemy nation that can take away your place in that kingdom. 
There's no common criminal. There's no disease. There's no suffering. There's no death that can remove you from your place in God's kingdom. We do not need to be afraid, and we need to worship God. Pastor Charles Spurgeon said, Whatever troubles come, let us show that we are not such little children as to be cast down by what happens in this poor, fleeting state of time. Here's what I really like. He says, Our country is Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus' land. Our hope is above the sky. We will see the wreck of everything earthborn, everything we create, and yet rejoice in the God of our salvation. Things will shake here, but our hope is in heaven. Friends, does your life reflect that hope and that confidence? Let's be clear about what this means for us. If you place your hope in something else other than God's kingdom, you will be shaken. If you place your hope in the things that you can accomplish, you will be shaken. If you place your hope in a family member or a friend, that person's not perfect and you will be shaken. If you place your hope in a particular political party, if this side wins, then we'll be good. No, if you do that, you will be shaken. If you place your hope in a particular politician, they will let you down and you will be shaken. If you place your hope in this country, the United States, we will endure, you will be shaken. If you place your hope in yourself, what I can do, I can do things right, you will be shaken. As we mentioned, we're having election day thing this week. We're glad to share with our community primary election. It seems voting, we always go from one election to another. The cycle is nonstop, but I would just encourage you to remember that this world is not your home. If you have confidence in this kingdom that cannot be shaken, then if your side loses an election, it's not the end of the world because you're not living for this world anyway. I don't know about you, but just speaking for me, I don't want to live for a kingdom that can rise or fall on the basis of how sinful people vote. That to me is a very depressing way to live. That's the way the rest of the world lives. Every election is the most important thing in the world because if our side loses, everything collapses. I prefer to place my hope in what will endure, what's guaranteed to last forever. Not, not saying voting, participating is, is wrong. I'm not saying don't do it. I'm saying no, embrace where your real home is. Because if your confidence is in that kingdom, then you can do the job that God gives you for that kingdom. And that job is to worship him. Your last blank is worship. We're called to worship God. Verses 28 and 29 says, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. What do I mean by worship? Well, as there's an old Christian song that says it's more than a song, and it absolutely is. One scholar said, worship is declaring with our lips and lives that God is more important to us than anything else. That's what we're called to do. That's the proper response to being a part of this better kingdom. That's the proper response to what Christ has done for us, faithful worship. It's only possible because of his grace, what he has done to save us and enable us to worship him. Again, chapter 13 will say, through him, let us continually offer a sacrifice of praise to God. May our lips acknowledge his name. That's what we're created to do. 
We don't work out our, our salvation. We don't work, oh, we work out our salvation. That's a quote from Scripture. We don't work, earn our salvation before God. No, it's something He has done for us, and worship is how we respond in gratitude. When we come together, we don't just sing songs just because that's what you do in church. No, it's supposed to be we're so thankful for the truths that we're singing. We're so thankful for what God has done for us. So yes, it's what we sing, but it's also what we live. It's everything we do through, for our Lord. The next chapter, chapter 13, is all about that. So how do we worship God? What does it look like to live for Him? And we'll talk about that. But let me give you a little preview. Romans 12 says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercy of God, present your bodies, your lives, as a living sacrifice. That's what is holy and acceptable to God. That is your spiritual worship, making your life about Him. Our text, though, provides one kind of final warning there. Why do we do this? Well, we worship Him with reverence and awe because our God is a consuming fire, a quote from the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy. Sometimes salvation is presented as like a, an insurance policy. It's if you die and you need someone to get you to heaven, Jesus can help you with that. But that, that's, that's not the message we're talking about. No, Christ is the only way to escape God's fiery, just wrath. And so we keep these things in balance. Our text went back and forth of these. God is holy. He's powerful. He's greater than we could possibly be. He's a consuming fire that we need to keep our distance from. But he's also provided a way for us to know him and enjoy a relationship of peace with him. We hold these things together in our mind. We can rejoice in the salvation provided by Christ. Yes, God is a consuming fire, but we can know him. I heard a sermon on this by a man named Brian Chappell. He said this, the consuming fire is no threat to those who have come to the mediator. If we've come to Christ, then that consuming fire will not burn you. The earth may shake, but the solid rock does not shake. Brothers and sisters, we are not at a terrifying mountain of fear and separation. Oh, through Jesus, we're at a joyful mountain of a relationship with God. So what does that mean? That means we shouldn't refuse God. We shouldn't reject what he has said. We shouldn't turn away from him when things get hard. No, instead we embrace his unshakable kingdom. And we worship him because he is worthy.